The economy has changed. Who invests in it and how has too. Today on Off the Sidelines, we're closing out the second season with a look at where investors go from here. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 10 of Off the Sidelines. Episode 10. That means this is the final episode of our second season of Your Guide to Becoming a Better Investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I am your host. As always, I'm Chris Wink, the CEO and co-founder of Technically, a friendly local guide to navigating your fast-changing local economy. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for women founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. So far, this season of Off the Sidelines, we have covered a wide range of topics talking about everything from how white investors can combat racial inequality in their sector, to alternative company financing tools, to how family offices and endowments can invest for impact. Across it all, the idea has been investing is changing, just like other parts of the economy. Today, we're closing out this second season with a wider look to bring it all together. Who is an investor and how is it changing? To do that, I have brought in off the sidelines veteran, business journalist, and technically managing editor, Julie Zeglin. Hello there, Julius. Chris, what's up? You know, just talking <laughs> investment with my dude. As so, we do. As we do. So, Julie, after a few hundred years of modern finance, today web tools are making public markets more democratic. But that word investor still mostly implies someone who professionally owns bits of companies. That hasn't changed for a really long time. Indeed. And so when we say investor, we mean it in the sense of those who invest capital into private companies. So some do it full-time. Most use it as one of many asset classes they might deploy. They might write a few direct checks to own a stake in a few companies, or maybe they'll be an LP in a future, in a venture fund, or participate in an angel group. And the idea is when you put in bits of money into a portfolio of early stage companies, some of those companies will fail, others will do okay, and you just might strike lightning and get a couple companies that will really thrive. Right. So yeah, put together, the strategy is to, put it simply, beat the market. Right. And Julie, this is a good foundation, but everything we've said so far is pretty much the same it was in like 1650. Rich people and really mostly rich men, making a bunch of financial bets, some in way riskier, way earlier on innovations, putting them in a bunch of stakes with a bunch of companies and aiming to maximize the return on that investment. So what is changing? Well, who is investing and why? So what's new today is super low interest rates and a focus on massive scale and growth from software and tech-enabled businesses has brought in so much new and different money to early-stage investing for wealth creation. So that's brought on a bunch of scrutiny about who is benefiting from this investing. Got it. So a big shift in this conversation is that venture capital went from obscure subset of finance to a major part of conversations about wealth inequality and economic opportunity. Though challenging that sounds like a social justice kind of thing, something that we've heard this entire season of Off the Sidelines is that reframing disparities in who are investors and why is also just a good hard check on where future economic returns might come from. Right. So this is the whole bunch of voices saying when just 2% of VC dollars go to Black-owned companies, but the U.S. Black population is six or seven times that, that isn't just an immoral disparity. It is a clear and obvious example of missed opportunities and markets. Right. And so the thinking goes that maybe a system that is still mostly populated by white men isn't likely to catch those missed opportunities. 
And this isn't just about identity issues, right? So in the season of Off the Sidelines, we've had episodes pushing the boundaries of what an investment means. For example, I remember hearing from the CEO of the Knight Foundation talking about being a social investor. If what you're trying to do is public good versus personal gain, I think we perform a terrific service when we offer risk capital for the public good in a disinterested way. And we also had the CEO of ClearBank mention rethinking ways to get private companies debt financing in new ways. Our goal here is to use data and technology to take that bias out of the process. You don't need a warm introduction to ClearBank. Uh, you can plug in your data. And we really just look at we look at the fundamentals. And we also had Lolita Taub talking about how founders of different backgrounds were part of an investment thesis. If you have homogeneous thought and approach, you miss out on opportunity. Don't be wary of questioning the status quo because after all, venture capital is all about risk and it's about go big or go home. So these are all efforts to shape what an investor is. Good callbacks. Make sure to check out those past episodes. For this episode, though, in addition to some call-outs from past episodes, you had a couple fresh conversations and interviews to ground us in how specifically the idea of investors are changing alongside of that great reporting. All right. So let me get you a couple fresh voices in here before we get another watered-down high school finance class. Ouch. So first we talked, <laughs> we talked to this woman. We believe strongly in our bones and all of this kind of tsunami of evidence that's out there and a diversity, equity, and inclusion is going to create a bigger, stronger wealth engine that better serves the populace and to do that in a tech-centric way. That's Pam Kraska, the CEO of All Raise. All Raise is a nonprofit that started around the time of the Me Too movement with a mission to accelerate the success of women founders and funders and create a generation of women leaders in tech. Some good news from All Raise is that um, in 2019, it reported that women check writers, which is defined as people with decision-making power in VC, grew from 9 to 12%, and the goal is for the organization to get it to 18% by 2028. Today, All Raise is a community of over 20,000 people supporting women on both sides of the founding and the funder side. And we'll also hear from this expert. Despite all I have done to try to accumulate a set of credentials that can dispel those ideas that women are less competent, somebody that I was attempting to work with as a co-founder accidentally emailed me his diary full of sexist thoughts about me. That's Tracy Chow. She has a ton of experience in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. She's been a software engineer at companies like Pinterest and Google, and she is currently the CEO at Block Party. It's a company that works to increase internet safety and build solutions to online harassment. But she's also worked on both sides of investment deals. She's been an investment scout specifically. So she'll talk about the importance of not only having a network, but having a network with diverse people and ideas so you can avoid situations like the one she just described. But first, let's back up. We'll hear from Pam about how Allraise is building networks of new investors from scratch. So Allraise has kind of a, a three-point philosophy of change, which is guidance, access, and support. And the mentorship model and the cohort model that we have kind of sits under that umbrella, where we want to make sure that women in venture have, obviously, we start with access. They have access to the opportunities, so really to blow up the whisper network of where the job opportunities are. And they need access to mentorship and guidance from people who are one stage above them about how to proceed forward. They need access to deal flow. They need access to knowledge about areas. 
and they need to have kind of a, a female centric network to do that. And they also need a cross gender network to do that. So what our cohort model does is really focus on pulling together, you know, 10 to 12 women to get together and, and have an intimate conversation and intimate bonds about career development and growth, about deal flow sharing, about theses and um, investment theses and how the environment is changing. We tend to do that by stage that they are at in their career. And we do that not only, it's important to have the cohort, but then we facilitate a community of cohorts, if you will. So that's when we're getting a, a mix and getting a little bit more into the mentoring um, capabilities that the organization does have. And the mentoring capabilities is the two-way street. So there's obviously the give to the rising stars and the sharing of the knowledge and the guidance about how to succeed in venture. But then there is also the give back, which is to learn about this next new generation of investors that's coming up and to meet people who don't meet that kind of standard white male Harvard Stanford profile. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm wondering how you either are either reaching out to women to be a part of these cohorts or how they're finding out about it. Um, and more broadly, what are some qualities or lived or professional experiences that these professionals have that make them potentially good investors? So if you look at where investors come from, they, they honestly can come from all walks of life. Last year, we looked at the new partners, for example, um, in 2019, who were named. There are 54 new partners who were female partners who were named last year. And so to get access to these women, we are just constantly leveraging our community. And our community is really core to what we, we do. And so we want to make sure that we have tentacles out into all different areas and not just our own network. So we, we push through these, these different partners and through our network and through our community to invite people to come. It's a very open process. It's not a closed invitation process, but an open call. We put it out on social media. We advertise it on our website. We put it into you know any medium that we can to try to attract people. And then we leverage through our partners. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of the people who are, it's a lot of people who are already in this world in some way. Is there work being done either always or, or elsewhere that you know of that is working to like even further down or further down the line. What's the opposite of that? You know, earlier in the process, I suppose, to get up top of funnel. <laughs> right, exactly. How how can how is the top of the funnel being expanded? Or is that work not really happening elsewhere? I think that you know the top of the funnel is being expanded. So one of the things that we wanted to do was for VC careers, we just wanted to say any job that was in venture, including those early analyst or associate jobs as opposed to just being in the whisper network of the industry, we should widely publicize them. So we have a VC careers newsletter that venture firms kind of submit analyst, associate, principal, partner roles to. And then you can subs- anybody can subscribe to that. So we intentionally go out to colleges and universities. We go and advertise to anybody who is interested in getting into venture. It's a way for them to just begin to learn. And certainly there are lots of programs that we're starting to see as well. There's lots of internships that are coming on now. How do we grab people from college and give them an opportunity, especially not the standard colleges, but organizations like Bessemer Venture Partners did one um, this summer that really went to historically black colleges and universities and said, let's bring those individuals in and do an internship program so they get exposure to venture. And so I think there's a lot of innovation that is happening that is trying to explode kind of this quiet 
networked effect that has been in existence for a really long time and open open it up both in terms of access, awareness, and knowledge um, that there are opportunities in venture and then the guidance to do so. Mm. And I'm thinking about the the education aspect um, that does involve mentorship. What does it take to be an effective mentor for those who are looking to break to investing? So for the mentors, it's really making sure that you have time and availability and interest in helping the next generation, right? If you don't have interest, then this is going sure. to be a forced, um, a, a forced relationship. So we often recommend just get together and have a cup of coffee and you know, break down some of those, those barriers and tensions and then make yourself available. And sometimes reach out to the individual themselves. If they're not reaching out to you, reach out to them, check in. How's it going? Be proactive in the process. That's interesting. I'm thinking about the, um, it is a, I guess the power dynamic and that is of course exists in any type of mentorship, but it's, it's an interesting idea in this particular industry. So I think that speaks to the sort of the overall issue that we're talking about as well. I am interested in the changing part now. So, you know, how is who an investor is changing outside of all raise? Are you seeing other venture organizations looking to catch up? You know, is there an awareness that, investors should not be all white men. The reality is that this is an adoption curve like anybody else. And so there are very forward-leaning venture firms who are constructing themselves thoughtfully and realize the benefits that are associated with diversity, equity, and inclusion. There are others who have not yet come on board. And you know, unfortunately, that's the preponderance. A lot of women we know through our studies do not get their promotions internally within their firms. They typically have to leave their firms. And that's unfortunate because if you've invested time and energy and thought and, and grooming somebody and building them up as an investor, you want to reap those long-term benefits. There are absolutely firms who are leaning in, who are getting this right, who are figuring this out. And you mentioned power and wealth earlier, and it does come down to wealth, which is um, the economics of this are going to prove itself out that having diverse firms and the economics are already there. So having diverse firms is going to improve the financial outcome of the organization. So lots of studies show that there is a 4% net IRR increase for a firm that has a 5% increase in women and women investors in their organization. So that's like changing quartile performance Mm -hmm. for your, your fund. Um, It's going to impact your ability to assess opportunities that may not be intuitively familiar to you and for you to do the research on. It is interesting to see the rest of the players. We haven't really talked about LPs, but the role of LPs in this equation. Um, And they're going to be playing an increasingly important role. So last month, we saw David Swenson with the Yale Endowment, one of the largest endowments that backs many venture capitalists across the valley make a very open statement about that he wants to see progress, not just wants to see, but is looking for measurable progress in the firms that he's investing in. And so he wants to see proven proven movement within the firms or else they jeopardize having access to his money. That's kind of the top down approach. And then there's also the bottoms up approach, which is what do founders care about? Founders being the lifeblood of the venture capital ecosystem. And so the more that founders can come forth and say, I care about the diversity of the, the, not only of my own company, but of the firms that are investing in me, and I will choose not to do business and take investment from a firm that isn't diverse, that's kind of the two-pronged pincer 
approach to the industry that will help us accelerate the change and the pace of change that we're at. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, I'm, I'm struck by the, the the top and the bottom aspects of that because we've had conversations about both, you know, founders who walk into rooms and they're the only person of color, they're the only woman in the room and they're, they don't feel comfortable and yeah, they're not inclined to accept money perhaps if they get to that point. Um, and then we've also talked about how capital flows through institutions. So the, the Yale example is really interesting because it is so much power. If we can kind of corral that that same interest in making change, that's, that's the multiple points. There's no single point in the ecosystem that we're going to be able to push on. It's the multiple points in the ecosystem. Um, that's kind of in the the DNA of all rays is how do you go and make a change? You can't just make a single change. You have to put your hands on, on multiple pieces of the equation. Um, most importantly for us is, you know, this is not a pipeline problem. I think we're moving beyond, like, oh, we have a pipeline problem. There aren't enough great qualified women or underrepresented um, individuals to come be in venture capital. That's a myth and we need to bust through those stereotypes as well. So Pam's organization is largely addressing the problems with network effect by building mentorship and support programs for people who come from backgrounds where they don't necessarily have a built-in network. And if that sounds familiar, you may be thinking back to Kelly Hoey, who is one of the first guests of this season, who actually has a name for this. We're talking about network gaps. And there is the gap that we're talking about where people don't have the networks, right? And you think about a founder who doesn't look like a room of white men, you know, their gap to get into that room. So does this mean that people with strong networks haven't made? Not necessarily. Our next guest, Tracy, for example, is a Stanford graduate with an admittedly privileged network, but she still faces problems that stem from the still largely homogenous viewpoint in Silicon Valley. Here she is talking about the progress she's seen made in that ecosystem. The current demographics are not good and there are some issues around it. Unfortunately, progress has been relatively slow. I think what has characterized the last few years is starting to see a lot of the major venture capital firms, like the most storied ones, adding their first female partner. And so we're still at the very early stages. I think the dynamics of that are still really tricky to navigate. And so what I've seen with some of these one and only female partners is that they have to navigate like representing women, but not over-representing women and then being taken to represent all of mm-hmm. women. There's some caution around over-investing or investing too much in female founders because it seems like they might be biased. And in other domains, we've seen how like, just adding one woman isn't enough. Do like Just adding one woman to a board isn't enough. Two is still tricky because... There are the dynamics of like, oh, if the two women are together, then they're representing all women. If they're not voting in the same way or in agreement on something, it feels like, oh, there's like a cat fight between these two women. Mm. But once you get past that, you have like three or more, or it's like 30% or more, then the women actually get to be themselves instead of representing their entire gender. Yeah, that's super interesting. And there's a lot I want to respond to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, you having been you being an investment scout, how did you get into that work? And some of the experiences that you've just described, have you experienced them as well? And what's a way to navigate that? I became an investment scout in a way that is very reflective of how Silicon Valley works, which is based on networks and privilege. And so it's mainly because I was already in Silicon Valley and working at companies that were considered hot companies and was on the radar of people who were at VC firms that 
I was just invited to become a scout. And so before I was a scout, I would sometimes look at the news coverage of startup deals and investment rounds and think, obviously, I would have done that or that's a really dumb idea. Of like, why would anybody invest in that? But um, this idea of actually being able to like make a decision around where capital goes then made everything very real. But I had potential deals in front of me. I had to make those decisions. Like, do I actually believe in this founder, this company, this market? And I got to learn how some of the best investors now, at least in terms of like their track records, think about deals. So, all right, sticking with the investor perspective, have you noticed, are there any essential qualities or like lived or professional experiences that you think make a good investor in your experience that you see? Yeah, I think in general, having a diversity of perspectives in decision-making is valuable. So it's not as if everyone should have the same lived experience. It's just when across the pool of people who are making investment decisions, you have diversity, you'll be a lot stronger as an industry. And then on top of those different experiences, lived experiences, work experiences, there's also uh, curiosity about the world, which is important, like in wanting to know which direction the world is moving in, in in different markets, like what is technology doing? Like what are the trends across society? And being able to connect patterns from different industries or different domains and think more creatively instead of just pattern matching against really trivial, irrelevant characteristics. That's interesting. We're talking again, just a couple of days after your op-ed was published in the information, the underside of Silicon Valley's co-founder mantra. And so you detail this belief in the startup and investing world that co-founders that you hear often that co-founders are better than single founders. Um, and so you also speak about how that belief has hurt you in seeking and funding, seeking support and funding for your own venture. Could you talk a bit about why that mindset that co-founders are better than founders is detrimental and what mindset or practices should take its place? Yeah, the broader point I originally wanted to make and then carved down to just the co-founder point for the op-ed was actually that there's a lot of Silicon Valley standard advice that just doesn't apply for people who don't fit the archetypes. And it is very real to me because I'm actually extremely close to the archetype where I'm relatively young, went to Stanford. I have two engineering degrees. I worked as a software engineer. I'm really, really close to that archetype, except that I'm a woman. And just because of that one variable being wrong, I already feel like most of the advice does not apply to me. And I could only imagine like if I were further from the archetype, like if I didn't go to Stanford, if I weren't already from the Valley, if I didn't have work experience at the, the companies that investors like, if I hadn't had startup experience, like how much less relevant would, would all of this advice be? Like my networks are quite wealthy and privileged. And I think that the thing to know about advice is it's someone else distilling a bunch of different experiences. And it may be the case that for many people or for some subset of people, having co-founders is generally better than being solo. Um, but in my case, after going through quite a painful process of trying out many different co-founders, like at least 10 different, more than 10 different co-founders that I've tried, I came to realize that these assumptions that are true for the people who can receive this advice and use it well, like they're just not true for me. And people told me that it should have been relatively straightforward to find somebody from my network. But 
when I would think back on people I could potentially work with, set was essentially zero. <laughs> like there's no one in that set. And there are some folks for whom it just doesn't make sense because of stage of life or like they just don't want to do a startup. There's that. Also, because most of the people I worked with were men, and there were quite a few of them who were openly sexist, others who were not openly sexist, but I got the sense that they did not really respect me. So it was never even like within the realm of consideration. And then there were some of these people that I tried working with, and in the process of working with them, I realized that they still don't respect me despite all I have done to try to accumulate a set of credentials that can <laughs> dispel those ideas that women are less competent. One of the more extreme examples was somebody that I was attempting to work with as a co-founder. He accidentally emailed me his diary full of sexist thoughts about me. <sighs> and hmm. it was useful at least to get that. Sure. <laughs> it kind of felt like those movies where suddenly you can hear what other people think. That's wild. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's what they think. Yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. That changes the way I'm going to like interact with them because I know how they think. And in this case, it was very helpful because I was like getting some weird vibes working with him. I was like, I don't know, maybe it's just because we don't know each other that well yet. And we're still learning how to work well together. After I got this email of his diary, like, oh, I understand why we had difficulty working together because this is what you think of me. And it also shed a lot of light on a lot of other interactions I had with other people who maybe were smart enough to not do that, but (laughs) likely thought in a similar way. There's just a lot of doubt and the industry is very happy to gaslight people (laughs) as well. Like you must be doing something wrong. And so being able to combat that eventually got to the point where I realized that this advice just doesn't apply for me. And I need to stop listening to people who are giving me this advice without understanding my circumstances. Like they are men who have mostly worked with men and I could finally start to push back on the advice I was getting. So I think the, the broader point is that there is a lot of this like accepted advice, which is just irrelevant. And it's not just irrelevant, it becomes harmful when people are forced to take it or feel like they must take it. And then in the cases that they don't take that advice, they get penalized for it because they're doing things the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Well, I'll... I guess I'll just ask if you if there's anything you want to add. So, I mean, again, the theme that we're broadly discussing is who's an investor and how is it changing? One thing that I've been thinking about and haven't come to a conclusion on yet is like, how are we actually going to quote unquote fix the industry and bring more representation in, bring more diversity and inclusion and start doing things a bit differently? The history. I was recently reading How to Be an Anti-Racist and part of that author's argument is that it's not about awareness. Like people are well aware of racism that exists and racist policies and they are continuing them because it benefits them too, because they're in positions of power that are propped up by racism and they, they continue to hold on to that power. And so it's not really about educating people so that they know that there is bias or that what they're doing is harmful to society overall. And You can appeal to some of those people with more education and help them to understand what are better policies to implement and get them to to use some of their position of power. But I think the way society functions is that people who are in power don't like to give it up. Like minority groups, people, people who come from oppressed groups have never stop the oppression by asking nicely of their oppressors to stop oppressing them. So I'm still kind of mulling over like, what are the right ways to get industry to change? It's not just about 
awareness. Like it has to be something structurally that changes or incentives that change, policies that force change, but we're not, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So these two interviews actually sum up a lot of what we covered on the season of Off the Sidelines. Yes, there's an understanding that the investing space is largely homogenous. Yes, there are efforts to make it less so. Progress will be incremental unless individuals and institutions take both big, bold steps toward inclusion, but also change their day-to-day practices and check themselves for bias. So Tracy really called out these mindset and cultural changes that some people are still grappling with, while Pam talked about this in relation to an organizational or systems level. Yeah, and sure reminds me of some of those early conversations we had on this season of Off the Sidelines. Do you remember Nasir Quadre giving us a check on what network effect can mean for investors? It will continue to be toxic if investors, my peers, continue to invest based on pattern recognition. Less about what they're investing in, but more about taking bets on founders who may, they may just be betting on them because they went to their alma mater. And we also had resident VC pugilist Dale Johnson noting if the who's and the why's of investors don't change, the entire system could come down. People usually fight over resources. And when you don't have an expanding pie, then the resource set that we have seems more and more important, which means that people will go to right, further and further lengths to secure it for their group. And so you see even further factionalization of society because there's no more frontier. These are big stakes for a nerdy corner of finance. Indeed, indeed. So how about you, Chris? So you've been our Off the Sidelines host now for two seasons. What are you seeing now overall and what's interesting from this season in particular? Yeah, I mean, I can't help but try to put this in a historical sense. You know me, Julie. So like a couple decades from now, I it sure seems like everyone's going to look back at this as a wild time with low interest rates and pop culture bringing way more money and a new fixation on private business financing. So like super powerful concepts have come to previously very dull topics. Right. Like every sportsman is now a VC. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean that sportsman, right? That's the term. You got it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, because in that sense, I mean, quite literally, it, this is a, a story of individuals. Like this, this, this podcast exists for the individual investor noting that you can make change with how you put your money and where. And like to that idea, to play off your other point, Julie, I think the resounding theme from this season is coming from those who are serious about private market investing being a tool not just for wealth creation, but, but also a driver of economic innovation and productivity. And, and a lot of them are saying that structurally changing VC is not just some dalliance of the woke elite. This is a serious and well-founded and necessary adaptation to ensure the big economic system uncovers and distributes more of those innovations more widely, more quickly. The idea that under-resourced black founders and underrepresented women investors are not like social justice issues alone. They are essentially emerging markets with high rates of possible returns, screaming and waving their hands at an investor class. Like that is a pretty powerful concept for me. Right, right. So especially since this is the story of centuries of private investment. So what new technologies and new markets are possible today that weren't possible yesterday? Mix together and go out, compete something that already exists and maximize returns. Julie, I've known you for five years. You are emblematic of the journey of an off-the-sidelines investor. Because I got to say, you once were not, but now you sound 
very capitalistic. <laughs> Please don't let my West Philly friends hear this. <laughs> are you implying that your West Philly crew are not already dedicated off the sidelines listeners? Thank you. Thank you, Julie, for being here and representing the crew on this final episode of Off the Sidelines. Thank you, Chris. All right. That is it. The final episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love Off the Sidelines, even if you only like it, you should be subscribing because we sure hope to come back with a third season. Right now, you can listen back to the archives of the first and the second season, and you can leave a review on any podcast platform of choice. Please, it means a lot. It really super does help. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting of Julie Zeglin and the time from Pam Koska and Tracy Chow. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails with post-production by Max Graham. I am technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>